study uh, here in the book of Galatians and I want you to turn to Galatians chapter 2 we're going to pick up where Mark left off last week and uh, I want to encourage you if you miss any of these messages to go online Uh, Brent uh, uh, puts them up every single week you can go on YouTube and watch them Uh, I did so I could catch up and figure out where we were and so I want to encourage you, if you're missing any of these messages, go online and uh, you can go to the YouTube channel, the Biblical Literacy Class, and uh, if we have your information, we'll enroll you in that email, and that's how you can get a link every single day uh, that uh, references you back to the class, what's going on here, the lessons that was taught, as well as Mark's thought for the day, which is always good uh, to uh, look at. So Galatians chapter 2, and we're coming off of last week where Mark made a, a passionate uh, plea for what the gospel truly is. And what he said was when Paul was discussing the gospel and, and defining the gospel, he was very strict in how he was defining the gospel. And Mark spent the whole hour last week outlining that in Paul's mind, this is what the gospel was. It was the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we know from other letters that Paul wrote, this is what he was referring to. This is what he meant when he said the gospel. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he said, I am passing on to you what is first importance. I mean, if there's a priority, it is this, the gospel. And we don't add to it. We don't take away from it. And that's what Galatians chapter 2 is really all about as we begin to turn the page. Paul is defending a couple of things here in Galatians chapter 2. Number one, he's defending his apostleship. Uh, He's defending himself. Because as these false teachers are creeping into the church in Galatia, the one that he planted probably on his first missionary journey, uh, they are a threat uh, really to Paul's apostleship because they're undercutting his integrity and so Paul doesn't like that Uh, and so he is writing in a defense number one of himself but mainly it's a defense of the gospel the pure gospel of Jesus Christ the death burial and resurrection I titled this message focused living if I had it to go back I would probably title it focused and faithful because that's what we're going to see in the text today. Paul is focused on the gospel and he is faithful to the gospel. And I don't know if there's anything that I want to be said of me. I want want that to be said of me. That Jarrett Stevens was focused on the gospel and he was faithful to the gospel. That'd be a a good uh, uh, theme for all of us. I mean, put on my epitaph, focused and faithful. And that's exactly what Paul is uh, coming across here in Galatians chapter 2, trying to uh, get it set. Look, I'm focused on the gospel. I want to be faithful to the gospel. Now, what we're going to see as Paul begins to write here in Galatians chapter 2 is that he's very, very passionate. He's very passionate about this 
subject of the gospel and that nobody adds anything to it. Nobody takes away from it. It's the gospel by faith in Christ alone that we are saved. And I believe part of his passion is rooted in his own story. Like he realizes what God saved him from. And he never strays from it. You read most of Paul's letters and somewhere in those letters is going to be his testimony of salvation. Somewhere in those letters, he's going to recall how God saved him. I mean, Philippians chapter 3, he begins to just do a rundown of who he was before Christ changed his life. Uh, Acts chapter 26, when he stands before Agrippa. If you read Acts chapter 26, and he begins to share his faith with King Agrippa, what does he do? He begins to share his testimony. His testimony of how God changed him, how the gospel changed him. It fueled his passion. And it's just a good word for us that if your passion meter is a little low today on the gospel, if you want to fill that passion meter up, I want to encourage you to just go back to the time that the gospel changed your life. Because when you remember who you were apart from Christ, where you were headed apart from Christ, and you begin to think about what Jesus did in your heart, his death, his burial, his resurrection, when you trusted in it alone for salvation, man, it'll fuel that passion right up. I think about it all the time for me. Um, for me, I grew up in the church. Uh, my dad was my RA leader back in the day. I mean, I bled royal blue and gold. Uh, that was the color of the RAs. I've got in my office upstairs... Uh, the two cars that we built to race in the Pinewood Derby. I mean, I loved, uh, my parents didn't just bring me to church and drop me off. I mean, they came with me. And I'm so grateful for the, the faith uh, that my mom and dad uh, grew me up in. But it was August the 3rd, 1989. I was 11 years old. I told the preteen students this weekend at our preteen winter retreat, I was their age. When a pastor was standing up, just like I'm standing up today, and he began to share the gospel. And you know what it's like, because if you're a Christian, every single one of you have been in this situation where a preacher is preaching, and there's hundreds of people in the room just like this, but it just feels like God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, speaking straight to you. You know what I'm talking about, right? And God's reading your mail, and you know that it's time for you to enter into a relationship with Jesus. August the 3rd, 1989. I didn't have any big sins in my life. I mean, about the biggest sin I had was picking on my little sister. But I knew that I needed to be in a relationship with Jesus. And as an 11-year-old, when the pastor extended the invitation to come to Christ, I just remember standing up and walking down that aisle. That's why we're committed to doing an invitation here at Champion Forest, because we just believe when the gospel goes forward that People ought to be given an opportunity to respond right then and there. And I came forward and gave my life to Jesus as an 11-year-old. Changed the whole trajectory of my life. And when I go back to that time, August the 3rd, 1980, even though I was 11 years old, no big sins, but I go back to that time, and I remember what it was like for God to save me, to call me. I mean, it just fuels my passion it just fills me up knowing that God 
would love me enough that he would call me to himself. And so I set this up in this way because it seems that Paul, when he's questioned, when he's being attacked, when the gospel's being attacked by these false what gets him going is he always reverts back to who he was before Christ changed his life. And he thinks about what it was that changed his life, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so he's very quick to defend his ministry, but most of all, to defend the gospel. And so he begins right here defending this gospel. And I want us to begin in Galatians chapter 2, starting in verse 1 and 2. The Bible says this. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. Now, you may not think that's a big deal, but I want you to underline it if you write in your Bibles. He took Titus along with him. Very important. Verse 2, I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before, those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaimed among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. Now I want you to keep your hand in Galatians chapter 2 and I want you to turn to Acts chapter 15. Keep your hand in Galatians chapter 2. I want you to turn to Acts chapter 15. Most scholars believe that when Paul is writing here in Galatians chapter 2, he is referring back to this visit that he writes about, that is written about, Luke writes about, in Acts chapter 15, what we know as the Jerusalem Council. Now, there's small debates about whether this is the exact time, and I'll let, if I'm teaching this wrong, I'll let Mark straighten it out next week, all right? I already told he's smarter than me. And the only thing I told Mark, the only thing I can win a debate on, I spent some time with him. The only thing I believe I can win a debate on Mark with is the way that he makes a peanut butter and jelly sandwich versus the way I make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, all right? Me, you do it the right way. And Becky feels the same way, I'll add. You put the peanut butter on one piece and you put the jelly on another piece and you put them together and that's what makes the magic happen, all right? Mark, he wants to mix them both together. I don't get it. It's the only, see, Mark, your class doesn't even agree with you, all right? No, he's going he's to straighten me out next week. Uh, but So if I'm wrong on the fact that Acts chapter 15 is a cross-reference right here to what Paul's referring to in Galatians chapter 2, I'll let Mark clear it up next week and I'll just tell you you go with what Mark says all right go with what Mark says but Acts chapter 15 I want you to notice what happens Paul makes this trip up this is what he's referring to in Galatians chapter 2 and I want us to read what takes place because the Bible says he goes by revelation to the church in Jerusalem that was the established church there that's where the leadership was Peter James and John early pillars in the church and as Paul is defending himself, and he's defending this pure gospel. Don't add anything to the gospel. He recalls this journey that he made to Jerusalem years ago, where the early church said, Paul, you're right. And so as he writes these churches in Galatia to be warned about these false teachers creeping in, adding to the gospel, he refers back to this Jerusalem conference. This Jerusalem council. And I want us to begin in Acts chapter 15, starting in verse 1. Listen to what the Bible says. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, 
You cannot be saved. All right, these are what is known as Judaizers. This is the same problem that Paul is dealing with here in the church in Galatia. There were people that were adding to the gospel. They were saying it's not just salvation in Christ alone, belief in his gospel alone that saves you. But you have to be circumcised as well. You have to be made a Jew. And not only do you have to be circumcised, you have to obey all of the Jewish customs, all the Jewish regulations. And these false teachers are coming in and saying, this is what it takes to be saved. It's salvation plus circumcision. It's salvation in Christ plus obeying the Jewish regulations and laws. And Paul, he he doesn't much like these false teachers, okay? In fact, he's going to call them in Galatians 1, anybody who teaches a different gospel that adds to the gospel of Jesus Christ, the death, burial, and resurrection, that's what saves you. He says anybody that adds to them, let them be eternally accursed. That's a different gospel. You studied that already in Galatians chapter 1. In Philippians chapter 3, he's going to call them dogs. He says, beware of those who try to mutilate the flesh, who preach circumcision along with the gospel. That's what it takes to be saved. He said they're dogs. Beware of them. Righteousness comes in Christ alone. We're going to see in just a minute, he calls them false brethren, pseudo-believers is what he calls them. So go... Uh, Acts chapter 15, we'll continue. Um, And by the way, uh, yeah, let's go to verse 2. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas, and look at this, and some of the others. I told you in Galatians to underline Titus. Most scholars believe some of the others. He's referring to Titus here. Titus was with them. That'll become very important here in just a moment. So Paul and Barnabas and some of the others, Titus, were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of Pharisees rose up and said it is necessary to circumcise them and order them to keep the law of Moses. And Paul says no, 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 no. He's dealing with the church in Galatia exactly what he was dealing with in his ministry to begin with. It's exactly the reason he went to the Jerusalem Council. It's faith in the gospel alone. The gospel alone. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. It's faith in that gospel alone that saves. Now there's a reason I'm underscoring this. You'll see it as we get to the end of our time together. There's a reason that we got to drill this into our minds. we got to drill this into our hearts. There's a reason that Mark took a whole class last week and described the gospel in as simple and as strict terms as possible. There's a reason for it. Hang with me. Look at verses 6 through 12 of Acts chapter 15. The apostles and the elders were gathered to consider this matter. 
Um, we're going to learn in Galatians that the apostles were there, the pillars of the church were there, Peter, James, and John, these early leaders. They were gathered to consider the matter, and after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did for us. And so here is Peter, uh, the early church leader, disciple of Jesus, eyewitness of Jesus, stands up at the Jerusalem Council after this debate as to what really saves. Do you have to be circumcised? Do you have to obey the Jewish law in order to be saved? Peter, Jewish follower of Christ, stands up and he says, no, you don't. We've debated this, we've discussed this, but we know God has come to the Gentiles just as he came to us. He poured out his spirit on the Gentiles just as he poured out his spirit on us. Look at verse 10. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? Because he says, look, if you've got to circumcise them and they've got to obey the law, they've got to obey the law completely if that's what's going to happen. And we know we can't obey the law completely. We're sinners. A circumcision is not a physical circumcision. When we come to know Christ, it's a spiritual circumcision of the heart. And this is what Peter is preaching. And so when we get to Galatians chapter 2, and you can go ahead and turn back there, this is the argument that Paul is building as he writes this letter of grace, as Mark is calling it. Because what he is sharing with them, these false teachers who are trying to add to the gospel, Paul's saying this issue is set. Um, essentially what Paul is doing here is he says, now listen, when we met with the early church leaders back in Jerusalem, I had others with me. One of these others was Titus. And he puts Titus forward as exhibit A. I mean, Mark's a lawyer. He knows how to do this. Exhibit A, your honor. Exhibit B, it's just proof of the case that you're trying to build. And Paul is building this case that it's only the gospel that saves. The gospel plus nothing equals everything. And so he says, exhibit A, your honor, is my son in the faith, Titus. He had led Titus to Christ. He had raised him up. Titus would later uh, become uh, an elder in the church at Crete. And he looks at Titus and he says, here is a man who is fully Gentile. He's a Greek. Mom and dad, Greek. Gentile to the core. I brought him with me to the Jerusalem church. And I put him forward as a test case, as an exhibit of someone who is saved, a Gentile who is saved. And they looked at Titus, and they saw the Spirit of God in his life. They saw the fruit of the Spirit exhibited in his life. And Paul says, this is they didn't make Titus be circumcised. They didn't make him obey the Jewish law. They accepted him just as he is. And so, again, when he's writing the church in Galatia, he's putting forth this argument 
that it's the gospel alone that saves. And Titus is a great example of this. You don't have to become a Jew in order to be saved. And so he puts Titus forth as living proof. Living proof. Now look at verse 4 of Galatians chapter 2. He says, Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so they might bring us in to slavery. I read Acts chapter 15 on purpose because Peter stands up and says the same thing, right? If we're going to circumcise them, we're putting on them a yoke of slavery. And Paul says these false teachers, he calls them false brothers, literally pseudo-brothers. One translation translates this as sham Christians, fake Christians. I was told um, early on, I went to Washita Baptist University in Arkadelphia, Arkansas for my undergrad. And when I was 17, that's when God called me into the ministry. I knew I didn't want to do anything but preach the gospel. That's all I wanted to do was be a, a pastor of a local church. Um, I never wanted to be a student pastor. I spent one summer at my home church as a student intern. I learned right then and there I didn't want to be a student pastor. And so all I ever wanted to do was be a pastor. And I remember going to college and being able to study the Bible as a major. I couldn't believe it. I mean, I couldn't believe that you could study the Bible and get a major in, in theology. And stu- I loved it. I would wake up every morning. couldn't believe I got to go sit in theology classes and listen to this. And um, I remember my professor telling me one time, he said, if you ever want to know about fake Christianity, you ever want to determine what something is as it relates to being a cult or a false religion, Here's what my professor said. He said, never leave the person and work of Christ. If you want to know what is a true religion and what is not, never leave the person and work of Christ. It's true. You study any false religion, you study any cult, and somewhere along the line, The reason you'll see that it's false is because they leave the person and finished work of Christ on the cross. They stray from the pure gospel. Paul looks at these Judaizers and he calls them sham Christians. False brethren. Why? Because they're leaving the pure gospel of Jesus Christ. He calls them fakes right here. And any salvation that adds to the gospel or takes away from the gospel, you can rest assured that it is a fake. Paul says they're trying to tie us down. They're trying to hold us captive. They're trying to put handcuffs on the freedom that we have as believers in Christ. Paul's going to write, just turn a couple pages over, Galatians chapter 5. This won't be on the screen, you'll have to look at it in your Bibles. Galatians chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Look what the Bible says. Paul, you'll study this in a couple weeks. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Don't 
Don't buy in to this false teaching. It's going to ruin the church. This is, this is, this is not something you need to embrace. It will enslave you. Look at what he says in verse 2. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. If it's the law that saves you, you better keep all of it. And this is why this is a letter of grace. Because Paul is magnifying in this the great grace of God. It is the grace of God that saves us. This is not of yourselves, he would write in Ephesians. We can't do anything to add to our salvation. Jesus did it all in the death, burial, and resurrection. He says, don't be tied to a yoke of slavery. You've got a new covenant now. Look at verses 5 through 9 of Galatians chapter 2. To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment. Focused and faithful, not even for a moment. Did we yield in submission to them so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you? And from those who seem to be influential, verse 6, what they are makes no difference to me because God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, to the Gentiles, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Now a couple of things here I want you to underscore. Two times... In the verses that we just read, Paul uses the word entrusted. I want you to just circle it there in your Bibles. God entrusted to him this gospel to the Gentiles. He says that God entrusted to Peter the gospel to the Jews. This word entrusted there, it carries with it this idea to deposit something for safekeeping. It's like if you have a safe at a bank or at your house, and you put something in there, you deposit, you make a deposit into that safe for safekeeping. Nobody can get into it. No weather can harm it. You make a deposit, and it's there for safekeeping. It is entrusted. Paul says, the gospel was entrusted to me for safekeeping. Now, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, I want you to know that God has entrusted the gospel to you. When you came to know Jesus, it's as if Jesus took the baton of faith and put it in your hand. He deposited this gospel message, the purity of this gospel. And again, this is why Paul's so passionate about it. Because it's been deposited into his life for safekeeping. And he wasn't going to let any false teachers get up and take anything away from it. You have been entrusted with the gospel. And so my question for you today is what are you doing with it? You go over to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 
Paul's going to write to Timothy, and he's going to say, Timothy, you entrust, uses the exact same word, you entrust to faithful men what I have entrusted to you. Paul says, Timothy, I took the baton from Jesus, who by divine revelation called me and saved me, and I passed the baton of faith on to you, Timothy, and your job is to entrust it to others. So, God's entrusted the gospel to you. Are you entrusting it to others? When I was writing this message and studying for this message, I started thinking about the people in my life that entrusted the gospel to me. I'm so grateful for them. Uh, One lady's name was Joyce Shoebridge. You don't know Joyce Shoebridge. She went to be with the Lord a few years ago. I preached her funeral. But she was my Sunday school teacher. Are you ready for this? From the 6th grade all the way to the 12th grade. Um, You could fit about, oh, I don't know, 10 of my home churches in this room right here. All right? I I grew up in a small church. And there were about uh, six or eight of us in my Sunday school class from 6th grade to 8th grade. And Joyce Shoebridge, she first took me through Experiencing God. She would have us 7th graders over, and we went through Experiencing God workbook together. She'd come and she'd teach every single week bunch of snot-nosed little 7th and 8th graders went with us all the way through high school I remember when I was so passionate about football uh, that's what I wanted to do and I'd wear a short shirt that said football is life coach like the rest is just details and she used to wear me out when she'd see that shirt she said Jared football isn't life Jesus is life you need to get and she'd just wear me out let me have it um Joyce Shoebridge passed the baton of faith on to me I'm so grateful I talked to you a little bit about my dad. He wrote to me. Passed the baton of faith on to me. I think about my mama. Um, she had a little country store called Stevens Grocery. And when I was in college, she was so proud to have a preacher for a grandson. She would send me her tie that used to burn my dad up. Don't send that tie to him. You send that to the church. She said, at least I know where it's going when I send it to him. I love Mama. Uh, nobody prayed more for, for me than my grand. I mean, I believe God's hand is on my life, and I am where I am today because I have a Mama whose prayers are eternal. And she prayed for me. She passed the baton of faith on to me. Think about a man named Mike Fetchner. When I first got to my church in Dallas, Mike Fetchner, he sold home security systems, was a millionaire. Uh, God got a hold of his heart through an inner city ministry. He ended up selling his company and, and working, starting this inner city ministry that he was involved in. It's called Bridge Builders. And his whole goal was to bridge, build a bridge between those who lived in North Dallas and those who lived in South Dallas. Because he always taught me, he said, Jared, those that have everything from an affluent standpoint are oftentimes very poor in faith. And you meet those that don't have anything from an affluent standpoint, oftentimes they're rich in faith. And it was the poor that taught him how to pray and taught him how to fast. And he said, when you build a bridge and you put them together, there's something very beautiful. And he taught me to have a heart for the least and a heart for the poor. It's amazing to me when I first walked into Champion Forest and I came in the Family Life Center. It's like my world's collided because the only time I'd ever been in Champion Forest was with my mentor, Mike Fetchner, who when he was diagnosed with brain cancer was having treatments here in MD Anderson, and I came and stayed with him, and we would come work out at Champion Forest. Didn't even know. 
And I walked in, I saw the track, and I can remember walking around the track with him as he was having treatments. He went to be with the Lord. He passed the baton of faith on to me. He entrusted it to me. Hey, who have you entrusted the gospel to? God deposited for safekeeping. He passed the baton on to you. And if you're a Christian, somebody passed it on to you. And I'm telling you, if they're alive, you need to write them a note this week and just say thank you for passing the baton of faith on to me. You need to send them a text. You need to make a phone call. Just say thank you for passing the baton of faith on. The question is, who are we passing it on to? Is somebody going to be able to stand one day and speak to the fact that you are responsible for investing in them and entrusting to them this message of the gospel. Paul said, God entrusted to me this message. He entrusted to Peter this message. He's entrusted to us this message. He even says it, look in verse 9, And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, preached the grace that was given to me, they gave me the right hand of fellowship. He said the inner circle, man, Peter, John, I mean, no two people were closer to Jesus when he walked this earth. James, the half-brother of Jesus. Early church leader there in Jerusalem. I mean, James, I love this story about James. He didn't become a Christian until after the resurrection. Think about that. He lived in the same house as God and didn't believe into it until he saw him raised from the dead. Then he became a leader in the early church. Christian legend tells us. I don't know how much stock we can put into it, but he went by the name, nickname Camel Knees. Because he spent so much time in prayer, his knees became hard like that of a camel. I mean, when he says, I went to the inner circle with this question, I met with them privately, Peter, James, and John. And I asked them, God has revealed to me that the gospel is to come to the Gentiles. And he revealed it to Peter up on that housetop. Remember, when he sees his vision, and he goes to Cornelius and takes the gospel to Cornelius, and Cornelius and his whole household get saved. He writes this church in Galatia and he says, don't fall for this false teaching. This has been settled. The pillars of the church even agree to it. These three men, including Paul, wrote 21 of the 27 New Testament letters. They're kind of a big deal. And Paul refers back to him and he says, these men, they agree with me. We don't add anything to it. And he said, they even extended to me the right hand of of fellowship a solemn vow uh, that's what that was a, a signal of it was a mark of partnership and again Paul's just writing these things defending his ministry his apostleship and defending his message he's focused and faithful nothing takes away from the gospel now I want to read verses 11 through 14 and then in closing I'm going to give you five points to ponder okay and we'll go through them very quickly and call it a day because you got to get to church I've got a guest that I got a host for church I need to say hello to him before the service starts all right so here we go look at verses 11 through 14 but when Cephas came to Antioch Peter I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned for before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. He calls out the hypocrisy of Peter. Again, focused and faithful. Paul's not going to let anything take away from his message and his mission, even Peter. And he calls him out on it. Peter was fearing man 
more than he was fearing God. So he's eating with the Gentiles and he's fellowshipping with them. And Paul sees that when the Jewish party shows up, Peter kind of draws back. And he doesn't like it and he calls it out. Verse 13, the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. That really got after Paul because whenever you see Barnabas, he was known as the son of encouragement. He's always doing good. Uh, He's always cheerful. He's always bringing people together. And here we see that he was led astray by hypocrisy. Paul didn't like it at all. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before all of them, you though a Jew live like a Gentile and I like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? In other words, Peter, stop it with your hypocrisy. Now look, I got to bring this to a close. And so as I bring it to a close, I want to give you five points to ponder. You ready? What we learn, putting it all together out of Galatians chapter two, number one is this, don't be afraid to take a bold stand for something you know is right. That's Paul. He knew he was right on the gospel. God had revealed it to him. And he says that over and over again here in Galatians. Think twice in chapter 1, once here in chapter 2. He knew that this was the right thing to do. And there was no way he was going to move from it. This was a, a hill for him to die on. had been revealed to him he had been a witness to it he had seen Titus's life change he had seen his own life change he'd been entrusted with this message and so he wasn't going to be take, afraid to take a bold stand for what he knew was right even if that meant going to the early church and talking to them about it fine I'll do it if that means writing you a harsh letter because Galatians is one of the most harshest letters maybe outside of 1 Corinthians, that Paul writes. He doesn't like what's going on. If if it hurts some feelings, fine. If I've got to call out some people, even if it's Peter, fine. When I know it's right, I'm going to be bold and take a courage and stand. When we know something's right, believers, when we've heard from God through His Word, let's never be afraid to be bold and courageous and take a stand. Number two, faith in Christ alone saves. Don't add to it. Don't take away from it. Faith in Christ alone saves. This is what Galatians 3 and 4 are going to be all about. That the just shall live by faith. Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. Faith in Christ alone. Let's never divert from the gospel. Again, remember sham Christians. If it ever takes away from the person and work of Christ, it's a fake. Run from it. Number three. I like this one. Choose the fear of God over the fear of man. Choose the fear of God over the fear of man. Paul, Galatians chapter 1, verse 10. Am I now trying to please man or or God? If I was still trying to please man, I would no longer be a slave of Christ. He wasn't going to fear man. That's why four times he says, he talks about people who seem to be influential. He wasn't trying to disrespect them. He was just saying, I've got a greater fear of God than I do a fear of men, even if it's the pillars in the church. I'm not going to fear 
man, you read the Proverbs, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, the beginning of knowledge. I've heard it put like this. The fear of God is not that God would take his hand and put it on you, but the fear of God is that God would take his hand and remove it from you. Paul always ran a little bit scared. And you and I always need to run a little bit scared. We need to remember the fear of God, not the fear of man. Again, Peter, what did he do that so, di- so upset Paul? It was a fear of man. The Jewish party showed up. Those that said circumcision plus Christ will equal salvation. And Peter draws back. He didn't want to offend. He didn't want to hurt him. Paul calls out his hypocrisy to Peter. He wasn't afraid of it. Fear of God over the fear of man. Number four. Honor those who are called uh, with different callings in their life. Honor those with different callings in their life. Um, I just say this as a mark of what we learned between Peter and Paul. Peter, you take the message to the Jews. Paul, you take the message to the Gentiles. We have different callings on our life, but one gospel. Different callings, one gospel. All of us are going to have different callings on our life. And as long as the gospel unites us, We don't need to worry about anything else. Don't let anything else come in between us. We're not going to separate over small issues that don't really matter. If you believe it's the death, the burial, and resurrection of Christ that saves you, we can fellowship. We can break bread together. We don't have to agree the same things about different doctrines of the church that don't matter. But on the essentials, we we got to see eye to eye. And Peter and Paul, they saw the different ministries of the church and they honored it. Uh, honor those that may be called to a different, uh, uh, different ministry than you are, have different giftings than you do, serve in a different place than you do. Uh, just because they don't see things the way that you do necessarily doesn't make them not a brother or sister in Christ. So honor that. Fifth and finally, the gospel both unites and divides the gospel both unites and divides Um, when we talk about the pure gospel of Jesus Christ it's going to unite us no doubt about it but at the same time you know what it's going to do it's going to divide us from others doesn't divide us the gospel unites us but it is inevitably because of the nature of the message that Jesus came fully man fully God died on a cross for our sins was buried and raised to life 